If someone is looking to buy, wanting to buy something, acquire right. something, whether they're buying a business, a car, a house, um, some potential expensive item, a jewelry, something of of more value than a thousand dollars, and they they might be able to negotiate a lower price. You mentioned the extreme price anchoring, how that is a mistake, right? There's a house for a million dollars. I'll give you two hundred grand for it. Right. right, that's right. that's. But you want to get a better deal, right? Maybe it's a Rolex, maybe it's a car, maybe it's a house, maybe you want to acquire a business, whatever it is, something right. of higher value, a ring, an engagement ring. You're going to marry someone, right? Right, right. Let them make their profit off somebody else. Yeah. What should be the lower percentage on a, a higher item of value? How? What should the initial offer be? You want to get a better deal, so you don't want to pay a million dollars for a home. But you really want the home. You don't want to pay three thousand for the diamond ring, the engagement ring, but you really want that ring. Right. How low of a percentage should you go to anchor in order for you to feel like, oh, I got a great deal and I got the thing I wanted, and they didn't get screwed over. You know what I mean? Well, depend upon the context. I mean, like thirty thirty percent is a good rule of thumb. To start at. Well, for for a target. Like if you if you and, and very very context driven. Sure. Like, for example, I'm in Macy's one time and um, picking out this jacket. Girl I'm with really likes it. She searches this thing extensively. She finds like a thread out of place. Mm. And she goes like, watch <laughs> me get 10% off on this jacket. And I'm like, <laughs> thread out of place. I can get 30% by being nice. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. Well, I, like in, in every transaction, you know, I look at it as an ag- there's an aggravation tax. Now, the person that you're dealing with has already built in the aggravation tax because of all the aggravating people that have come through the door ahead of them. So there's an aggravation penalty. There's an annoyance tax. There's an aggravation tax. It's already there on a price. Now, if you're not aggravating, you don't need to pay the aggravation tax. Interesting. Let somebody else pay that aggravation tax. And you so, benefit from them actually paying that that tax. Yeah, let, some, let somebody else pay it. Um, if I'm not aggravating, why should I pay the aggravating tax? So, <laughs> you know, this young lady, she'd gotten 10% off on a regular basis. I will be demanding 10, 10% is the annoyance tax when there's another 20% to be gained. Mm, interesting. Like you don't, so many people don't realize how much money they're leaving on the table. Really? Like massive amounts of money on on any given the difference between ten percent off and thirty percent off. Right. Like they got a way to give you a better deal mm-hmm. if they feel like it. So how do you get them to feel like it? Well, so yeah, great. There you go. Exactly. Again, the approach very similar to the hotel thing. You know, there's there's a there's a strategy where we sort of bundle the skills in a black swan method. We call it the accusations on it. The accusations audit. Accusations audit. Let me do an audit of all the names you would call me <laughs> if I'm going to do this. Uh huh. You say this. You say it to yourself. Okay, not to Because I need to come up with a list. Uh-huh. So, again, it's like, look, you get annoying people coming through here all day long, every day, want something for nothing. I'm going to look like just more like another one of these annoying jerks. It's really demanding and rub you the wrong way. Don't appreciate how hard it is for you to work in this jewelry store 
this car dealership, this wherever you are. You are knocking yourself out in a tough sales job. Mm -hmm. You're trying to feed your family. People are coming here trying to take food out of your mouth. Because how do they see it? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about you. And it's not about, it's really not sympathy. You know, the difference between sympathy and empathy. You know, I feel your pain. Right. Like, I've been there too. You know, like, I'm a regular guy like yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, don't give me that regular guy stuff. <laughs> so, but you you look at people like me, you want something for nothing, who come walking in all the time. You know, you look at us as, as wanting discounts and, you know, and you're trying to feed your family. Now, suddenly, this person is like, oh, wow. They get it. This is not the yeah, other yeah. annoying jerk that came in here. Now, now they're starting to open up. And then, you know, you talked before about being playful. Being playful about this can be a really big deal. I, I've gotten so many things for free for being playful or upgrades or discounts just by, let me just say a friendly joke or just something funny. Right. You know, let me just be goofy and dance in front of them and be like, what is this guy doing? You know? Yeah. You just got, you don't got to pay the aggravation tax. Yeah. And then plus, see, Sean says you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. Not only have you put the person in a better mood, you now got them thinking about options. Mm. What can they do? What, you know, how can they help you? What can they get away with? How can they shortcut the TSA line? How can they, um, what's the code for the employee discount? Like I, you know, in this, this same place where I'm, where I'm trying to get this 30% or so off, and I'm joking around with this guy. Sure. You know, and, and one of the things you get him to see as a human being, I'm like, well, I'm Chris. Is there a Chris discount? What kind of Chris discount is there? <laughs> and they laugh at that. And so, and, I, and I'm still not getting enough of a discount. And finally, I go like, look, give me the employee discount. Mm, I've been you? joking around. I smile when I say this. This guy goes like, if I give you the employee discount, i got to pay for this thing myself. And I go, I'll pay you back. Yeah, yeah. And I'm laughing and he laughs. And so he looks at the machine and I says, wait right here. And he walks around, and I see him, and I walks up to a person, and I perceive to be the manager. He's whispering in the manager's ear, and I see this manager standing there going like, no. No, really? No. And he comes walking back, and another employee intercepts him, whispers in his ear, and I see his eyes light up, and he walks over, and he plugs in a discount for me, and we get the 30% off. Wow. But I was joking with him. I was showing I knew what it looked like from his perspective. I'm getting myself out of this aggravation tax thing. Mm -hmm. You know, let somebody else pay the demanding, aggressive, mm -hmm. annoying tax. Mm -hmm. You go in there and you brighten somebody else's day up. You leave the world a better place. You get some practice in because mm -hmm. you want that confidence for the big negotiation. Right. And all these things work for you. And you are you end up feeling better about the day yourself. Yes. You get a fun interaction. Yeah. And you got a discount. Exactly. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair. You get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. All right. Lay it on me. What do you got? All right. So um, ghosting is a problem, but I think one of the worst problems, especially whether it's sales or deal making, which is what I'm in, um, stay in touch, right? The prospect, the other party, they want you to stay in touch. You don't stay in touch enough, you become forgotten. If you stay in touch too closely, you are annoying. Any suggestions on tact tactfully or tactically staying in touch and making sure you're moving the needle with them? 
Yeah, so um, their their last words to you is stay in touch. What's the prompt here? Yeah, usually it's this question I get asked a lot. So it's usually we're in long sales cycles, pretty complex deals. Um, they they tend to like you, or whatever, but they're they're not ready to move forward with the negotiation, the deal, the contract, or whatever. Stay in touch. They're not saying no, which I rather they ghost or say no because then we can move on. But stay in touch. So what would be you know, a couple of ideas you might think of of how to stay in touch. You know, that, that's that. No, 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 no. Let, let, let's rethink this. First of all, that's a, that's the same as a maybe. And you got to treat maybes as if they're no's. So that's that's mm-hmm. where you got to proceed. After saying stay in touch, it's either a flat no, they're not going to do it, or they has, they have misgivings that you're not revealing. Mm-hmm. So. You and you know that to be true. Like, are you keeping your are you keeping your percentages, your win rate percentage, your length of time to an outcome, and your percentage of successes on your stay in touches? A percentage of stay in touches to success, yes. We we call it more of a pull through yield, meaning deals we put in the pipeline to success ratio. It's really high. It's about eighty five percent. But this is more the answered my question. Hold on. Yeah. Stay in touch as a category only. You can tell me what percentage of the stay in touch people, let's call mm-hmm. let's call them a zebra or a giraffe okay. or a thoroughbred. I don't care. Mm-hmm. They're one they're one profile. Mm-hmm. Stay in touch. Can you tell me what percentage of those close and how long it takes to close? Yes or no? Yes, I could. I could. Yes, I could. Yes. Okay. So, can you? Uh, so, first of all, it's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. Correct. So, if they're saying stay in touch, what do you know to be true? That they're not saying no. They're somewhat amenable to terms, but whether it's timing or pressure or something on their side that's not motivating them to be enough to turn the dial to let's sign uh, the retainer. All right, so they have misgivings or they lack pressure or they don't see the immediate value. Nobody says stay in touch on something that they see immediate value to, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Otherwise they'd execute. If they see immediate value to it or if they have um, pressure to execute, they'd execute. So the response is going to be a label. Stay in touch. Sounds like you have misgivings. It's a good point. Stay stay in touch. Sounds like there are other things that are pressuring you. Now, they're going to be much more likely to talk with you about the barriers than they are to talk about what's going to hook them. Mm Mm-hmm. Because people are comfortable talking about what's getting in the way because they don't feel there's a commitment involved. So they're free. I'm free to tell you what the barriers are. It's up to you to solve them. If you want to say, well, what would it take to make this deal? I don't want to say that because it's going to back me into a corner. Mm -hmm. So you want to focus on the barriers instead. And you probably want to go after that with labels. So I I would I would never, you know, and I I gotta tell you something, nobody in my business development team goes into stay in touch mode. Uh, and and a lot of what we've learned will be inspired by similar to um, Jim Camp's Start With No, 2002 book. I work with Jim. 
we collaborated over a lot of stuff. Me and his sons, Jim is since deceased. Their whole approach was to get somebody to make a decision, yes mm-hmm. or no. But every conversation was designed to make a decision and stay in touch is to avoid decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's a maybe, and it's never, never land, and you cannot monetize maybe. To some degree, you can monetize. We're not making this deal because then you can move on. So I would, I would never go into stay in touch mode. I get stay in touch. What do you know to be true? You know, they don't see the value right now. You know, they're being pressured in other areas. You know, they have misgivings. You know, those things to be true. Mm-hmm. Throw it out with a label. Focus in on that. They're going to be much more likely to talk. With you. I like the take on that. Very good. I love it. Thank you. You're a rock star, yeah, man, man. But you know. That was a great question. Thank you very much for, uh, for the question. Thank you. Pleasure. I say no. I used to say no before we finished the sentence. But, you know, I, once I said no, I felt protected. And I'd say, all right, now, now tell me again what you wanted. Because I felt like I, I can now listen with no commitment. And as stupid as changing from, have you got a few minutes to talk to is now a bad time. I mean, you could hear people dial in and focus on you when they say that. They'll hesitate for a second. They'll clear their head and they'll say, no, it's not a bad time. Or, no, it's not a bad time, but what are you after? The point is you want their focus. And yes creates distractions and, and no clears distractions. Is there, do you see a difference between is, is this a good time versus is this a bad time? I never ask anybody if it's a good time, ever. It's, a, you know, it's counterproductive. Okay. because. Is this a good time? Well, I don't know what you want to talk about. I don't know how long you want to talk. Um, I don't know that I want to talk to you. I mean, is now a good time to talk is actually a solid four individual questions. Do I want to talk to you? Do I want to talk about what you want to talk about? How long are we going to be on the phone? How do I get off of the phone? You can't answer that question without having all those subsequent questions running through your mind, which means you're completely distracted. And that's why something as simple as is now a bad time is a really bad question. Mm-hmm. I like it. Let's um, talk about the, uh, the preparation, right? Some of the, you talk a lot about there's a fine line between preparing for a negotiations where it, it, sometimes you prepare too much and so that you have assumptions and versus hypothesis. So I've always been taught, you know, walk into a negotiation with as much information as you can. You understand their situation, you understand their, op- <coughs> their options, your competition, all of it. So that what, with, with that preparation, you can go in and be ready for whatever they throw at you. But you, you say a couple of times in the book or when I was reading it, rereading it again, that you don't, sometimes less is more when it comes to preparation for a negotiation. Could you? Yeah. And then. Let me answer that after I go back to what I said a second ago, because um, I think I misstated the question that I said was bad. Have oh. you got a few minutes to talk is a bad question. Yes. Okay. And I, and I think somehow I misstated a moment ago. Yep. Okay. So uh, now let's go forward to preparation. Mm-hmm. All right. So we got to look at the negotiation process as an information gathering process. So you don't gather your information and then negotiate. You gather some information mm-hmm. and then dive in to confirm it. There's always going to be pieces of information you can only get from the negotiation to start with. Those are black swans. No matter how much research you do, 
there's no way you can find out what time pressures they're really under without talking to them. What their take is on what you think their problems are. You can't find out if there's anything about your value proposition. You can't research it and find out exactly what they value most without getting into the negotiation. There's, there's no way you can find that. You can guess, but you can't confirm. So a lot of people are scared to get, in, scared to get caught off guard in the negotiation. You better get caught off guard. Like I said, if you didn't discover stuff in, in, the, uh, in the interaction, then you're actually a horrible negotiator. You're not discovering anything. You know, like uh, there was uh, one guy in sales that was applying. I must have talked to him two years ago. He's, he's getting the second meeting 80% of the time. now, And his job is to get on the phone and get a second meeting. And I said, so you, since you're applying our skills, among which is he starts out with the question, have I caught you in the middle of something? He said every, every single time the answer is no, but what's this about? And that sort of response tells you that they're completely dialed into you, which is where you want to be. But I, I asked him, how much research is he doing on, are you doing more research or less? And he said, oh, way less. They're going to tell me more than I could ever find out anyway. Their LinkedIn profile is not going to tell me what I need to know. Their, their Facebook page is not going to tell me what I really need to know. I got to get it from them. Your, your main tenet of negotiation is tactical empathy. Right. And, and the FBI actually thought that the best approach was empathy, which I think is really interesting when it comes to negotiation. People just want to be understood. They want to be accepted. They want to be heard. So tell us a little bit about tactical empathy and how important it is in a negotiation. All right. So empathy has become um, confused with sympathy and compassion these days. Now, real fine line is um, empathy is not compassion. It is a very compassionate thing to do. And it is a critical step towards compassion. You can't become compassionate without, really, without having empathy first. But empathy is just completely understanding where someone's coming from and being able to articulate that, especially the parts about it that you might not like. That's a, those are the critical issues. If, 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 you, if I make you nervous, if I intimidate you, I should say, eh, I'd probably intimidate you. Mm -hmm. That's going to demonstrate understanding on my part. And we dropped the word tactical in front of it, first of all, to, to try to divorce it a little bit from needing it to be sympathy. And also the fact that we know how the brain works these days because we have neuroscience. I can watch the brain work. And so if we know how it works, why don't we take advantage of it for better relationships, for great com right. collaboration? Give me an example of how you would use tactical empathy in a negotiation. I, and I may say something at the very beginning of the negotiation that, you know, it, it, when, when people call us on the phone, we say, look, you've got to be pretty nervous about trying to negotiate with a negotiator. That's calling out the elephant in the room, not denying that it's there. Just say, hey, you know, there's an elephant in the room. And as soon as you do that, if you deny there's an elephant in the room, people say, hey, what's the matter with you? There's an elephant right there. Right. And if you say, no, there's an elephant there, everybody looks at it and goes, yeah, but, you know, it's not that bad. Yeah. You see, listening is a martial art. But what's interesting about tactical empathy, it's reverse psychology because you're still getting what you want out of the equation, correct? It, it, well, all right. So with great power comes great responsibility. Superman's uncle, for by the good way. Or was it Spider-Man? Spider-Man's uncle. Spider -Man's. Right, let's get it right. Okay. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a skill. It's a tool. It's a technique. You can use it to manipulate people. You can use it to create great collaboration. It doesn't invalidate the, the tools. It's like a cell phone. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's I'm got, everybody's got a phone. I was scared what you were going to pull out of your jacket there for a second. 
No, but the cell phone is just a tool. Negotiation is a tool. I could use it to manipulate people, but that's going to, I'm going to pay for that down the road. Okay. I need to use it to create great collaboration, then to pay off down the road is, is even better. Okay, so tactical empathy is the core tenant. Um, some of the other tactics that you use, we're going to go through those. One of them is mirroring. Mirroring? Mirroring. <laughs> nice. See, we just mirrored each other back and I forth. I read his book. I know how to mirror. Yeah, the hostage negotiator's mirror is just repeating the last couple words of what somebody just said. What they just said? What they just said. You just repeat the last words of what they just how said. How about that? Very nice. I knew she, she, told, she warned me in advance. And it keeps people talking. I mean, it lets people know that they were heard, but with the upward inflection, like it's a question, it says to somebody, hey, I heard what you said, but it wasn't quite enough. Could you please expand? And that's what you say and what they hear. You want them to hear all that. And then they expand and they talk more. It's as simple as repeating the last couple of words that they said. It's, yeah, it's a, that is the simplest, and the, actually some of the smartest people love that because of its simplicity and because it works so well. You call mirroring your conversational Swiss army knife. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, you can do a lot of stuff with this. I mean, the simplicity of a lot of the skills shouldn't fool you. The simplicity, in, if you will, gives it its elegance, gives it its adaptability, how many mm -hmm. different things you could do with it how many people you can negotiate with globally. Yeah, this, I, when I was reading this, it was very counterintuitive. You say that you want someone to say no. Why would you ever want someone to say no? We feel safe and protected when we say no. We feel, we feel like we've made no commitment so we could be more honest. We feel like we could go on. I mean, the, uh, a calibrated no is worth at least five yeses. And people just go on. I could say to you, Does, do you agree? No. And you, you might be like, ah. And if I say, well, do you disagree? And you'll say, no, I don't disagree, but here are the following problems. And you'll lay them out very quickly. So you'll talk to me a lot more after you've said no than you will after I've cornered you into a yes. So it gets them to open up in some sense. And then once you get that no, what are the questions you should ask after the no? Well, first of all, I got to give you a chance to talk. I mean, some of us, some of us are uncomfortable with silence, you know, dynamic silence, you know, shut the front door, if you will. You, you got to be willing to go silent and let the other person go on because you having said no and feeling protected, there are more things that you tell me mm -hmm. if you don't feel you're going to be trapped by saying them. Yeah, like what about this? You have a couple of suggestions. If you get a no, what about this doesn't work for you? Right, again, um, if I remove barriers to agreement first, we'll get there faster. That's right. And that's another tactic. Instead of saying, you're right, you say, that's right. Why is that such an important distinction? And how does that's right open up the conversation? All right, I'm going to reveal a few people's secrets in here right now. <laughs> you're right is what we say to someone that we either have to or want to maintain a relationship with, but we want them to stop talking. Is that why my husband says that to me all the time? The greatest practitioners of your right in the world are husbands. Oh, I am onto him now. He says you're right all the time, and I thought he was just placating me, but he just wants me to shut up, right? And he loves you. Yes, he does. He just wants me to stop talking. <laughs> so he can sit there and bask in your love. Or something.
<laughs> okay, um, effective pauses, like the one that we just had right there. Effective pauses are also very effective when it comes to negotiating. Right, yeah. Um, give people a chance to talk. People want to know that they've got a chance to talk. To be, uncom to be comfortable with silence. Two out of three of us are not comfortable with it. Uh, we believe that the world splits up in a, evenly, regardless of gender or ethnicity, into three types. Fight, flight, make friends. Wait, say that again. Fight, flight, make friends. Right. Those the caveman response to threat, okay. to conflict. You know, a caveman walking down the jungle path either fought something that surprised him, ran from it, or made friends with it. And those were the ones that survived, and the ones that couldn't make up their mind get eaten. Mm -hmm. And have any descendants. Wow. Did they have to get eaten? <laughs> Such a tragic ending. Um, yes. Okay, so that's right versus your right. Effective pauses and be likable. You, um, you were telling me yesterday you're six times more likely to make a deal with someone that you like six times. Six times. Now, I can't control whether or not you like me, but I can control whether or not I'm likable. Mm. And in many cases, it's as simple as just smiling. When you're doing an interview. This all sounds so simple, honestly. It, and you learn this at Harvard and Scotland Yard and the FBI, but these are like, it's just, it, what you're telling us seems so simple, but it's so effective. Yeah, it's, it's simple. It's, most of it's counterintuitive and it works. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's, it is effective. It's, it's emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's EQ. Um, don't say I understand. I understand is what people say to us when they want us to stop talking so they can talk. You're right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was just like, uh-huh. I feel in over my head. <laughs> That's exactly what my husband says. You also say, um, I'm inviting him next year, by the way. Um, you want to ask, it's, it's not what they're asking, it's why they're asking it. And you really want to figure out why they're asking for what they're asking for without saying, what are you asking for, right? You're trying to get into the why. Well, you get what. into the why, but why is another thing we find out as a hostage negotiator, literally, I've, I've had a chance to test drive this stuff on the entire planet. The word why makes people defensive. You can't, you know, you can't ask somebody why. Um, my son is my director of operations. His speculation why it's a global phenomenon is because when you were two and you knock something over wherever you lived, whatever country, whether you're an Arab or African or Latino, the nearest adult looked at you and said, why did you do that? And we've been, everybody's had it drilled into their head that you've done something wrong when somebody says why. So you do need, do need to find out their whys, but you switch the why to a what. Okay. And instead of saying, why'd you do that or why do you want that? I say... What makes you want that? And then you're more likely to answer. Interesting. And you also mentioned the power of an open-ended question. And just define an open-ended versus a closed-ended question for us. All right, so technically, you know, the, the who, what, when, where, how, and why starts with uh, not with a verb, not is, or does, but, but really focus it down to what and how. And how is the open-ended question on steroids? Because if I ask you how... First of all, you love to tell me how to do stuff, mm -hmm. but it causes you to right now. stop You're projecting and projecting on me. <laughs> <laughs> but how triggers what Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics, uh, slow thinking, mm -hmm. in-depth thinking. And I'll ask you how, 
not necessarily because I'm looking for an answer, but more I'm trying to shape your thinking. I'm trying to get you to stop and think and put mm -hmm. you through an in-depth process. And there's a lot of good reasons for me doing that. What happens when you feel the negotiation is slipping away and it's out of your control? All right, so then I'll call, I'll call it out. And, you know, again, it's the elephant in the room. If it's slipping away, if it's out of control, it's probably because at that point in time that I haven't earned your trust. And I'll actually say, you know, it doesn't feel like I've earned your trust. Mm -hmm. Because I'm going to want you to encourage, I'm going to encourage you to share with me what the problem is. And I can't, if I say, you know, why is this slipping away? You're going to feel accused. Right. But if I simply, or, or if I say, I don't want this to slip away, again, that's a denial. Mm -hmm. But instead I'll say like, ah, feels like this is slipping away. Mm. And so you'll call it out. If you're going to answer me, I've got to draw it out of you in a way that causes you to trust me. Another thing that I wanted to throw in is Christopher with us today. I wanted to get a chance to just address a couple of things that you brought up in the, in the last class. Got a chance to listen to the recording, obviously. And I think it's an issue that a lot of us deal with, whether we're the ones doing it or we're having it done to us. But this idea of, you know, you always want to get the most for yourself. But at the same time, you want them to feel treated fairly. First things first, I love the intention behind it in that wanting to make the other side feel like they made a good deal too, right? As you know, I mean, what's, what's leading that is if they feel like it, they, they got taken advantage of or they made a bad deal for themselves, the implementation of that deal in the long run is probably gonna leave a lot to be desired. Right. Unfortunately, when we when we beat people down to their socks, one way for them to get back at us is when the implementation goes down the drain. And so I love the sentiment there in general. The one slight tweak that I would make to that just in, in its raw format actually really speaks to a class that Troy is teaching called Caviar, which is all about mindset. And so it's really, really subtle. But when we go from thinking, how do I get the best deal for myself and change that to how do we make the best deal for us? That's a simple enough mindset shift and, and, and a slight enough tweak in the focus that now the intention really becomes more about us rather than what do I do for me? And then as I'm getting everything I need, how do I kind of fix and make them whole at the same time? Right? Instead of making it two separate pieces, you, you attack it much more holistically. And it's just simple mindset shift. And even more so, adding that in to some degree as you set the stage with your accusations audit to, uh, to the tune of, I know it's important for us to make a deal that makes everybody better. Adding that as your intro to set the stage is, is some of the way to inject that into the environment as it were. But uh, Derek, one of our other great uh, instructors and, and success coaches, and he's been with Black Swan for a long time. He was, he recently purchased a home, bought a piece of land out there, had a house built. Now he went into that negotiation with the Ackerman technique. He used that to leave no meat on the bone for this contractor that he was dealing with. I mean, he got, he got every last cent 
that he possibly could. And for all intents and purposes, made the very best deal for himself when it comes to the economics and the dollars as, 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 as could be made, right? I, I don't think he could have done any better from that regard. In short, Derek's house got finished almost a year later than expected. And so, yeah, up front, right? He got that win of every single, every last cent. But he beat the contractor down so badly, right? This contractor's got a lot of jobs going on, as many contractors do, as many companies do, right? Dealing with different clients, entities, vendors, what have you. And when it comes to prioritizing in the long term, it's very easy to prioritize the jobs you're making money on and very easy to let the others fall by the wayside. And so Derek kind of found out the hard way, right? Beating him down to his socks actually caused like an eight month delay in the house getting built. And they went through periods of time when they couldn't get this guy on the phone, right? For all they knew, he jumped on an international flight and left the country. Jack Welch, author of Jack and Winning, alongside his, with his wife, Susie, they're coming through uh, Los Angeles a couple of years ago. They're, they're, they're hustling their book, The Real Life MBA. I go to the book signing Jack Welch is at. I want him to come speak to the negotiation course I'm teaching at the time at USC. How many people try to get Jack Welch to say yes to something at that book signing? Pretty much every one of them, right? They're going to come up there, Jack, how are you? My, yeah, my kid makes, my wife makes a great meatloaf. You want to come to the house tonight? God knows what they're going to ask him. Jack, I got this invention. Would you pose with it? How many people are going to ask him to try to say yes? That day, that week, how many people try to get Jack Welch to say yes to something? You're me. You come up to Jack Welch. What do you say? And how much time do you have? You maybe got seven seconds. And even if you get to the second response after him, there's 300 people standing behind you in line. They walk you up there. Before you get to them, they say, what's your name? Chris, write on a piece of paper so Jack doesn't get it wrong. Really, that's so you don't, so you don't talk to him. And then you keep moving. On top of that, have they patted me down? Do they know whether or not I've got a gun? Have I been through a metal detector? As a matter of fact, I do have a gun, but he's not in trouble for me. They don't have my identification. They don't know I'm not going to hurt him. I'm going to get within arm's length of Jack Welch. Action is quicker than reaction. They can't stop me from doing anything I want to do. This is, this is the dilemma of bodyguards. You get within arm's length of the target, you can only stop them after they've done it. You can grab them after they've killed your target, but you can't stop them. I'm, I'm going to get within arm's length of Jack Welch. They, I could do whatever I want. I could walk up to him and kiss him right on the lips if I want to, right? <laughs> he was falling asleep. I want to make sure he wake up. He's going to wake up screaming in the middle of the night. Ah! I walk up to Jack Welch, and this is what I say to him. Is it a ridiculous idea for you to come and speak at the negotiation course that I teach at USC? He looks up and to the left, he gets this really intense scowl on his face. And he just freezes. And I think to myself, I just killed Jack Welch. <laughs> he had a stroke. He's so furious. And he's going to die. And the security's going to tackle me. and going to drag me on cuffs. I'm going to say, but I'm an FBI agent. Said, we don't care. He killed Jack Welch. So initially, when he doesn't die, I'm relieved. But he still doesn't move. 
finally unfreezes. He looks at me and he says, this is my personal assistant's name. This is a special Twitter account we have set up to communicate with her. I will call her and tell her who you are and what you want. I think we're going to be in Los Angeles in the fall. If we are, we'll come in and speak at your class. Calibrated no is worth at least five yeses. Do your homework and the test is easy. It's a great quote from a gentleman that I recently met that I think is phenomenal. He's about training human beings. His name is Jeff Spencer and he trained Olympic gold medal winners and he trained Tour de France champions eight years in a row. Do your homework and the test is easy. What does this have to do with negotiation? We need opportunities to practice our negotiation skills on a regular basis. And the regular basis is the low stakes practice to give us the high stakes result. So the phone calls that we get each and every day, somebody calls us on the phone and says, have you got a few minutes to talk? Now, if you're black swan negotiation trained, you don't ask people that, but that doesn't mean you don't get anywhere from two to 10 calls per day where somebody says to you on the phone, have you got a few minutes to talk? Now, I wrote a piece for The Edge a couple of weeks ago that said, write down on a card next to your phone, the mirror, so that when somebody says, have you got a few minutes to talk, your mirror response would be, a few minutes to talk. And they begin to give you a lot of information and you get some low stakes practicing because you don't even know what this conversation's about and you get to practice on mirror. So today we're gonna practice on labeling. How do we get some low stakes practicing on labeling? Same situation, somebody calls on the phone and says, have you got a few minutes to talk? You say, sounds like there's something on your mind. Say it with a smile. Say it nice and friendly, because tonality is where expertise comes from. Tonality comes from mastery. Write down on the same kind of a card that you put your mirror skill on, put it next to the phone. At the top, put caller. Have you got a few minutes to talk? And under that, you write, sounds like there's something on your mind. Because if they've called you and they ask you that question, it's a tell, if you will, that they do have something to talk about. And sounds like there's something on your mind will get you right to it and get you a good feel right away. You'll have a great connection with the other person. They'll feel heard and understood and you'll get to it in a hurry. All right. Have a fantastic day and keep reading the edge and never split the difference. Could you give us some example scenarios of low stakes negotiation practice that we could utilize in our daily lives? So I know on our previous conversation yesterday with Choi, he said that uh, a very easy low stakes negotiation practice is ordering a drink from Starbucks. And mm -hmm. if you just have a, a very polite conversation with your barista, it could potentially change the way of their day like how their day went. So could you give us some other practice scenarios that we could utilize? Absolutely. I would say in any everyday conversation, actually. Uh, my favorite is to use it when I go to the grocery store, talking to the cashier. Those people are so, um, you know, sometimes overworked. They're there for long hours. They're standing all this time. And I, I, it bothers me when I see the person in front of me kind of disregard them and just kind of act like they're not really there. They pay them, they take their receipt and run away. There's no, you know, conversation. So I found that when I get to the front of the line, if I just use a simple label, uh, depending on the dynamic that's happening at the store at the time, you can say, seems like you're having a really busy day. 
And you'd be shocked at the response that you get when they realize that someone is actually going to interact with them and have a human conversation. Um, they become very open and very friendly, and it really does change their whole outlook for the day. Um, same thing can be said for any phone conversations that you have. Um, the, the way I like to practice the most, I think, is with family, um, family and friends. So if you have children, especially, it's great to practice on this with children. If you have a, four, a four-year-old who doesn't want to pick up their toys, <laughs> you can, you know, use a simple accusations audit or a label to kind of get them to buy into the fact that picking up their toys is going to be this wonderful thing. Um, it's great with teenagers, too especially because if you have a teenager who goes to school and they come home and you say, hey, how was your day? First thing they're going to say is fine. It was fine. But if you change that around just a little bit and you say, well, it seems like you had a pretty hard day at school today. And if they had a hard day, then they'll be more willing to talk to you about it because you didn't use one of those question words, those buzz words of who, what, where, when, how, whatever, any of those question words Teenagers automatically kind of put up a wall against that. But if you use that simple label, it's a very good way to engage them without asking a question. And you'll find that you'll actually get them to respond to you. Even if you say it was a hard day and it wasn't a hard day, they'll correct you because, you know, one of our laws of negotiation gravity, the desire to correct is irresistible. So they'll correct you. And when they correct you, they're going to give you the proper information about how their day actually went. So you can get a lot of information just by using a label instead of asking questions always sound like someone that they want to speak to. Now, what that sounds like from person to person is going to vary, right? We talked about a lot about that last time. And then a lot of what we're going to talk about today, get your barriers out of the way, right? If you, if you got a chance, right? Another sports analogy. Let's say you're running track and there's literally hurdles on the track in front of you. If you have the opportunity to remove all the hurdles off the track before the race begins, a lot of us would probably choose to do so instead of making the race harder on ourselves by jumping those hurdles or trying to anyway, right? And in negotiation, it's not like in real life where the, all the hurdles are the same height and they're all fall over easily in case you tip them, right? In negotiation, the hurdles are of different sizes. And if you run into one, it might knock you down. Right. And so if we got an opportunity to remove those hurdles out of the way before we get started, why wouldn't we take it? And so if we sound like somebody who's easy, who they want to talk to, who they want to talk to, and that's how I'll make the distinction. That's someone who's easy to talk to. How do we sound like someone that they want to talk to? There's a fine line between the two. And then how do we remove those hurdles out of the way? And some, some of uh, you know, back to the cliches from the book. But some of this is very important for us staying out in front of those things. And the first thing about that is never be mean to someone that can hurt you by doing nothing, which the reality is, is pretty much every single person we ever interact with. They can all hurt us by doing nothing. And they're much more compelled to do so if we've been mean to them or they feel disrespected by us in any way. And then the other part of this, which I'm sure you know, a lot of you already think, but you haven't necessarily heard us say, how would you speak to someone whose position or point of view you actually care about? 
And that's, that's, that's something I actually struggle with because I'm that type of person. I like to give advice, you know, especially people that I care about, right? I want to give them advice. I want to tell them how to solve it. I get caught up in problem solving mode. And when I do that, I know that I'm actually ignoring their point of view or positioning because I'm problem solving. I'm not actually listening at a deeper level. I'm trying to help them figure out how to solve it or how to help them see the solution as opposed to just listening deeper. And those are two very different things. So again, keep those things in mind. It's much harder to get our barriers or our hurdles out of the way if we're not focused on how they're affected emotionally at a deeper level. Denise, unmute yourself if you can. Hi. So Denise is here in, uh, in West LA and this recently she's had a long-term client who she's done multiple deals with just purchase a, a big property from her. And then in purchasing that property, he turned around and wanted to sell three properties that he bought from her. How long ago? One was a year ago and two were three years ago. Okay. And so when the, uh, when he, he came to her about listing the three properties, Denise informed him that her, her fee was 6%. And, you know, he really pushed back on that and said, you know, I, I don't think that's fair. Why don't you give the color, Denise? So, you know, it's his business manager who signs everything, but I felt in the interest of full transparency, I did want to let him know it was 6%. And um, he said he thought it was 3%. We got over that hump. The business manager signed it at 6 Now that he's realizing that he's going to probably take a loss on all three properties or very barely a break even, he asked me to um, reduce my commission to 5 and was really emphatic and felt it was a fair ask. Um, you know, he's never worked with me as a listing agent. And that's one thing I brought to his attention, you know, that he, he doesn't know yet. You don't know what you don't know. And he doesn't know yet the value I bring as a listing agent. And um, what were you, how are you feeling? Again, you just sold him a, a, a big property and mm -hmm. earned a nice commission check. Mm -hmm. Now you're going to list three properties. Mm-hmm you want to have a standard of six. That's what you typically charge. That's right. And now he's pushing back on you and you were feeling what in that situation? Well, initially I was feeling threatened, challenged. Um, yeah, I was feeling like there was probably no way that I was going to get him to agree to the six. I was feeling that future business was at stake. Um, feeling that I was going to let myself down, let the group down if I didn't stand firm at my six. And it took me a minute to be able to see the bigger picture. Um, and that 
you know, I'm not disappointing anybody if I make a business decision in deference to the relationship. So I did ultimately, you know, agree to go to the five. I right, let me jump in here for a little while. Okay. Um, All yours. <laughs> first of all, uh, let's everybody learn the Barbara Corcoran line. All right. So I was on a, uh, I did a clubhouse room uh, on equal pay day for women. We get, uh, we get some interesting women in there talking about a Barbara Corcoran, Molly Bloom, Cat Cole. I mean, some real rock stars. And, and, and got, got to kick. Barbara Corcoran is a handful, by the way. I mean, I got to tell you something. You got to bring your A game when you're in conversation with her. Because, you know, her, her dealing, she talked about learning to deal with New York City real estate developers when they started harassing her sexually and picking on her and trying to expose weaknesses. And her response was to give it right back. And I got to tell you what, you know, and I'd been warned in advance that there were different times that she was going to make me feel like a pork chop in a conversation. So I wasn't caught off guard by any of it. But one of the things that she said that I really loved in that conversation in her negotiations was I have never regretted saying, give me time to think about this. And for somebody with that much business experience, who knows each and every word that she's choosing for her to say something as strong as I have never regretted saying, give me time to think about this. Uh, I don't know that I got any statements that yet that I would attach that much certainty to in my world. So, you know, what Denise is talking about is how hard you're going to get knocked off your feet when somebody drops the F-bomb on you and all the different things that's going to go through your mind and your visions of the future are abruptly changing and your concern about relationships. I mean, your amygdala is firing on an extremely high level at that point in time and ain't, ain't no good visions going through your head. Because you're a human being and your amygdala is just, you know, been kicked into high gear. And so, I mean, I'd even practice staring in the mirror and saying, give me time to think about this. Because that's what you're looking to do. You're looking to buy some time because the F-bomb is going to knock you off your feet. And, and and catching you off guard, especially from a long-term client, done a lot of business with, worried about relationships, worried about future deals, worried about obligations. I mean, that's a lot. Those are a lot of legitimate things to be banging through your brain all at once. You're getting dive bombed by all these concerns. Give me time to think about this with your late night FM DJ voice. And anybody that is not going to give, you know, I don't know, like, again, I, I don't know how all it's going to play out, but Barbara Corcoran said, I have never regretted saying, give me time for thinking, to think about this. 
And that's good enough for me. Question behind a question is always the most important issue. But here's what we want you to be really cautious about yes-oriented questions, because he didn't mean that as a trap. He meant that genuinely and honestly, simply to try to confirm some information to see if it was okay to get into an area. The problem is the yes-oriented question on the other side always feels like it's a trap. We're yes-battered on the other side, which is another reason why you got to get out of that, because somebody's guard's going to come up automatically and, you, and to me, you're like, well, I'm not trying to trap anybody, so therefore I should be able to use a tool that trappers use. I'm still going to smell, feel, trap because I'm battered with yes. You did a nice job helping us illustrate two points. Number one, the yes is still a trap even when you don't mean it to be. And number two, really what I as an understander need to know is what's making a mask. That's where you really get into real conversations. So, what made you ask? <laughs> What's the purpose of power? What's the purpose of power? Mm -hmm. To control the situation. All right, so we, uh, here, here's what I very respectfully, it's going to sound harsh, we want you to get out of that. Secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. If you're a control-oriented negotiator, I got you. Your overriding objective is to feel in control. The key to power negotiations is deference. What was my purpose? No. See, now he took my answer and he heard what he wanted to hear, didn't he? Did I ever tell him what my purpose was? No. He simply confirmed the yes and went, aha! Did he actually confirm? Did anybody hear me say what my purpose was? Did he jump to a conclusion? Yes. Did he add any more information to even try to confirm his conclusion? There's, there's, this is enough of a problem for all of us. That our academics have a phrase for it. If our academics have a term for it, it's a problem. Confirmation bias. You're looking to confirm. Confirmation bias. Information gathering process. You cannot be deferential and project power. If I sniff that you're a control-oriented, power-oriented guy, and I'm a cutthroat, you will have bled to death before you knew what happened. And the cutthroats love smelling that. They love it. Because you've, if, if, and, and, it, and it is a type. I mean, it's, it's one that I've been typically have been guilty of myself. You know, assertives want to be in control. I want to project power. If he projects power, how does he feel? Awesome. And when you feel awesome, is your guard up or down? And so all you got to do to get your way with him is the feeling, the emotional moment, if you want to exploit him and take advantage of him, is make him feel powerful. State Department, state, when, I'm, when I'm overseas on behalf of the FBI, State Department is in charge overseas. The FBI is in charge of investigations and 
negotiation strategy. And the FBI is not good at not being in charge. And we're always in charge domestically. And my first time in an embassy in the other country, I'd be like, all right, look, I'm in charge of negotiations. This is how we're going to do this. And State Department would be, you're not in charge of nothing. We're in charge. But I'm in charge of negotiations. But we're in charge. And it'd be a battle. And I'd tell them what to do, and they wouldn't do it. So then I'd walk in, I'd say, you're in charge. Now do this. And they'd go, OK. <laughs> it's silly. But somebody's determined to be powerful and be in charge, let, make them feel powerful and in charge, create that emotional moment, you can have your way with them. Well, let's say you and I are bargaining or negotiating, and then I tell you I, I can't pay that price. I should, I should absolutely stay strict with that number, right? Because if I move from it, let's say I'm willing to pay more, wouldn't that make me look like a liar? Because I said I can't do it, but then here I am saying, okay, I can pay a little bit more. So I'm just wondering, if I say I can't do that, should I absolutely mean it and not move from it? Because if I don't, I'm afraid I'll look like a liar. Long-term relationship might be damaged. That's a great question. Okay, so... Um... If you are the one who's saying, I, I can't do that, which I think is the, the angle you're coming at it from, right? If I, if I was saying it and if, I, if you were saying it, what I would uh, suggest is pretty much exactly what you said, not to move off the number, right? When, when we do not say things in the attempt to manipulate, we say things in an attempt to influence and then let people know what our positioning is. If that's your true position and you want to be honest about your position and you go to that number and that's it, then I would suggest sticking to that, which is part of what the phases to know that we're getting into here in a second, right? We'll address. So personally, I would say, yeah, if you're going to do that, stick to it, live by it. Don't come off it, right? Use tactical empathy to say, I, I know I'm a jerk. I know this makes me sound terrible. I would imagine that you're thinking all these horrible things about me since I said that, right? Like I like hit them heavy with those things. Now, vice versa, right? Flip side, you're dealing with somebody else who says, I just can't do that. Now, I'd love to say that more often than not, those people are, are being honest. They, they are genuinely exhibiting that they can't move any further. Unfortunately, we also all know that that's not always the case, right? There are those people out there that is technically a category that people who use a phrase like that fall into. But unfortunately, we know more often than not, it's probably a manipulative thing or it's, it's another way to, uh, when people don't know how to exhibit it physically or with their voice or in an emotional standard, this idea of he or she who cares least wins, Right. That's how people will try to articulate that with those words. I just can't go any further. And then you get them to move a little bit more. Perfect example. This is like uh, Pawn Stars. I don't know if anybody's ever watched Pawn Stars. They are a great show to watch when it comes to like if you just want quick repetition on what human beings look like as they're going through into the emotional roller coaster of bargaining. What are some real simple um uh things that people react to pawn stars is a great thing to watch and, and i would suggest like go on youtube type in like pawn stars like craziest deals and you can spend five minutes watching like 10 straight bargaining scenarios and really watch how people tick which is which is uh really interesting but 
there's somebody who does that. They go, I, right, you know, that's my bottom line, right? 22,000. Like, oh, how about you do a 24? No, 22,000. I can't go any further. And then they come up to like 22,500 or something before it's all said and done. And so that's another place where if you're getting that, responding with a form of tactical empathy is always going to be more effective than using a number. Something to the effect of, it sounds like you're getting a lot of pressure internally. It seems like I've put a lot of pressure on you as a result of making that ask, right? And then throw in more accusations on it. I'm, I'm sure that I look terrible. I'm sure that it's, that it, uh, uh, um, um, makes me look really greedy. I'm sure it makes me look like I'm trying to be uncollaborative on purpose, right? Hit all those things. And then for the purposes of the exercise we're talking about right now, right? What's the no oriented question or the thought shaping question that you throw on the back end of that tactical empathy to get them to come off that this is as far as I can go. Now in the rare case, that they fall into the category of being completely honest. They'll probably start to get a little angry, but not really angry. The people that escalate from zero to a hundred right away, that instantly go from being, maybe they were a little bit angry the whole negotiation and now they're spilling over the top. Or they've been completely calm the whole negotiation now we've gone to the price discussion and they immediately are going boiling over. That is a tactic. That is, that's, that is all that is. People have those, those individuals and more often than not assertive types, they have learned that they can make people move, take any sort of movement whatsoever just by exhibiting so much anger. What's really interesting about these people, and it's kind of a separate topic, is those are also generally the ones that say, I like to keep emotion out of business, right? Business is not an emotional thing. And then they come in and go, ah, rah, 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 rah. and it's like, like what, 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 what's happening here? The hypocrisy is hurting my, my brain right now. But great question, Chris, right? If we're using it, stick to it, be honest about it. We are never going to condone lying. And then if it's the flip side, you get it from the other side. Chances are they're probably not honest. What else do we use to kind of combat that? It's going to be a form of tactile empathy combined with a label, nor into question, thought shaping question, which you all are going to work on right now.